The following program is presented by the Far East Broadcasting Company because stories of people living out the gospel with their lives inspire all of us. FEBC, taking Christ to the world through radio and new media. Learn more at febc.org. It was a joke among my faculty and my staff that whenever Birnbaum is in town, we got problems. We got trouble. <laughs> I mean, I was literally in Russia every time there was a major event. And of course, I loved it because I'm a historian. I'm going, this is great. Our first person guest is John Birnbaum, the author of Opening the Red Door, the inside story of Russia's first Christian liberal arts university. I'm Wayne Shepard, and John has a fascinating story to tell. You'll hear much of it beginning in just a moment. The interview you're about to hear, as well as a whole audio library of interviews, is made possible through the Far East Broadcasting Company. FEBC celebrates people everywhere who are the hands and feet of Jesus in this world. Every day, nearly 900 broadcasters in almost 50 countries open microphones to tell listeners of God's love and offer of salvation. As a result, millions in hard-to-reach places have their lives changed through the gospel message. Learn more at febc.org. Dr. John Birnbaum is an educator who was on the front lines when Russia suddenly opened up in the 1990s, providing an open door for many ministries. Those were incredibly exciting days filled with possibilities. Working with the Council for Christian Colleges and Universities, Dr. Birnbaum took on the role of president and CEO of the Russian-American University in Moscow. In his book, he tells the story of the rise and fall of this first-of-its-kind school in Russia. Helping him early on were Peter and Anita Dynika, a dynamic Christian couple who had spent many years in Russia leading up to the historic events of the 1990s. John Birnbaum sat down in the studio with me recently to recount what really happened. Well, the whole story, Wayne, of my involvement in Russia is directly linked to Peter and Anita. I was living a normal life until I met Peter Dynica. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he came along when Soviet Union began to open up. Uh, he spent time with me and kept talking about the need for a Christian liberal arts college in Moscow and would I be willing to be involved in this project. And uh, he kept trying to pull me in. So I uh, fell in love with Peter and with Anita and made an, agree an agreement that I would spend seven years into this project to get it launched. I had no idea that would turn into 25 years. Right. But uh, he was the one who really laid the groundwork for me and gave me a vision for making a difference in the post-communist world. Yeah, Peter was a visionary. There's no question about that. You know, I remember, Wayne, his memorial service. And... Person after person said, used the word servant. Peter served other people. He didn't take credit for himself. He was spending time encouraging other ministries. And I saw that. And it was a remarkable testimony to me when I've seen in my life so many nonprofit leaders just be concerned about their own organizations. Right. This guy had a vision that was so much bigger than that. I uh, was able to travel to Russia a couple of times in the early 90s with Josh McDowell and the Ministry of Campus Crusade and witnessed some of those exciting days. And you have certainly had a unique vantage point during a significant window in world history, the opening up of Russia. Uh, let's talk about that. Yeah. Where were you and what was going on in the 89, 90 for you? Well, I was working with the Council for Christian Colleges and Universities, and Going back to 1990, when—well, uh, actually, the Berlin Wall came down in December of 89, 
About 18 colleges in our association said, we want to get involved in exchange programs in Eastern Europe and in Russia. And so they came to our council and said, give us some leadership here. Help us figure out how we can do this. So that's when my attention began to be focused uh, on Russia. Now, I had finished a Ph.D., you know, 20 years earlier in European and Russian history. All right, so you had some background. Yeah, but I had kind of walked away from it for 20 years, just becoming a general educator and not really focusing much on Russia. But when this opportunity came along, I mean, I was so excited when the president said to me, would you be willing to give some uh, leadership to the Russian initiative? I about jumped over his desk. I was so (laughs) excited. I had not been to Russia. I had studied it for a couple of years, but I had never been there. So the opportunity to be involved and help these colleges get started was an amazing opportunity for me. We'll talk more about that, but I want to take you back even further because I'm sure you can remember growing up. I certainly remember growing up the Cold War. I can remember, you know, the the drills under the school desk uh, and that kind of thing. You 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 uh, remember those days? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> so, did anyone imagine what would happen in '89 and '90 and '91 and in Russia with first with Perestroika? You know, Wayne. The answer to your question basically is no. Almost nobody. I mean, there were a couple people who had some suggestions that maybe things would change. But in my book, I mentioned the fact that the Brookings Institute, which is a prestigious think tank in Washington, D.C., put together a study in the mid-'80s, and they brought 35 of the top Russian Soviet experts together. And the conclusion of that book is Russia's not going to change. Russia's got certain traditions, and and it's going to stay the same. Too big to fail, as we say now, right? That's right. (laughs) (laughs) So, I mean, their estimates were – they were completely shocked. Hmm. And it started with perestroika. What what is perestroika? Perestroika means restructuring. It's when Gorbachev came to power in 1985 and slowly began to see that his initial timid reform efforts weren't going to get any place, weren't going to go any place until they did some structural change. And many so people was, confuse perestroika with glasnost. They're related, but they're different. Yeah. Glasnost is the policy of openness, transparency. So you put those two together, you're going through a restructuring process with institutions, you're having elections for the first time, you're forming parliaments, you're forming political parties, uh, you're changing the economy from a centrally planned economy in the direction of uh, free market. And in addition to that, you're opening up all of the sources of information about the history of Russia. Yes. It's just an extraordinary. I mean, Gorbachev was an amazing man. Yeah. He is an amazing man. Right. You are invited to go to Russia in what, in 89 or 90? 90. 90. What was that like? What were the circumstances and what was that like getting on a plane to go to Moscow of all yeah. places? You know, Wayne, some of it's still a little bit of a mystery. I mean, I basically say what I can in the book about this. But what it comes down to is Peter Dynica and Anita established a friendship with a a fellow named Kazantsev, who was a deputy minister of education in the Soviet Union. He oversaw 500-some universities in the Soviet Union. And he was so unhappy with these American educators that were flocking into his country when Gorbachev came to power and began to open the the system up. Mm -hmm. Because he said, these people are coming here and they're bringing their alcohol and their drugs and they're going after Russian women. All the bad things they perceived about the Western world. Yeah. And he said, this is not what we need right now. And so somehow in God's providence, Peter and Anita befriended him. And actually, uh, 
they arranged for some Wheaton College students to come to Moscow, I, th- I think in 89, and they met with Kazantsev. And he listened, talked to these kids, and he was so impressed with the quality of these kids. And they talked about their faith. Hmm. And so Kazantsev said to Peter and Nita, you bring us students like this and have them bring their Jesus with them. <laughs> now, this guy, of course, is not a Christian. Of course, of course. He's, he's, a, he's an atheist, life, most likely, Marxist, right? Yeah. You know? But he saw a quality there. And so that's how it began. So then the conversation took place in the spring of 1990 about doing an exchange between Soviet universities and American universities. And Peter Dynica said, well, there are these Christian colleges in the United States, Mr. Kazantsev. You need to learn about those. So they, we signed a protocol. Peter and Anita signed a protocol that began the exchange. So it all began when 16 educators came to Washington, D.C. in September of 1990. And my wife and I were working for the council, and we had to host these people for 10 days. And then you reciprocated and went to Moscow. And then a month later, we were invited back on a reciprocal trip. Uh-huh. Were and, you intimidated uh, by that? I was frightened. Probably not intimidated, but I was, but I was frightened. I mean, I, I knew I was dealing with some Soviet leaders who were in their 70s, and I'm in my four, early 40s, and you know, I'd never been involved in direct negotiations with Soviets before. And I could tell when they came to Washington, D.C., that their negotiating techniques were pretty rough, hmm. and they were used to getting their way and bullying their way. And mm-hmm. so I was, you know, I had read about this in the books, but to actually deal with it, that concerned me a little bit. But the shock of going to Russia was, I mean, it was so exhilarating. I remember standing right in front of the Kremlin (laughs) thinking, what am I doing here? (laughs) This is is absolutely amazing. And then uh, the key thing was on October 26, when the Minister of Education, a new Minister of Education appointed by Boris Yeltsin, uh, told me to come to his office to meet with him. And I told my Russian host, my Soviet host, I don't want to go see this guy. I don't need any more bureaucrats. <laughs> you know, I'd rather deal with universities and not go through all the mm-hmm. bureaucracy. He said, John, you're our guest. You will meet the minister. So, so I went to meet this man, and he was an amazing guy, young, dynamic leader. And uh, he said to me, we're going to throw the Communist Party off these campuses. We're going to democratize these institutions. Wow. We're going to give the presidents the power to do the, handle their own visas and so forth. He was feeling his oats back in the day, wasn't he? Oh, it was incredible. And I'm a historian, you know, Wayne. I'm sitting there writing notes down 90 miles an hour going, this is amazing. And then at the end of the experience, he said, will you come here and build a Christian college in Moscow like you have in the United States? And I was stunned, absolutely stunned. And, Wayne, the first thing I thought of was words that Peter Dynica had said to me before I left. Don't make promises you can't fulfill. Yeah. The Russians have had all kinds of promises from Americans who go over there, and they never follow through. So when I thought of that, I said to the minister, I said, uh, Dr. Kenilev, I can't promise we can do anything, but I'm going to try. I will go back and report to my president's a board of college presidents, and I'll see what I can do. But I'm honored to be asked. It was just stunning. It was a, Wayne, for me, it was a Macedonian call. Mm-hmm. I mean, I realized I had to, I had to do this. Yeah. So that's how the process began. Yeah. So you took it back to CCCU? Yeah. Now, the CCU leadership had a board of 
mostly college presidents of member institutions, and they were very excited about student exchanges, faculty exchanges, uh, translation of textbooks, and so forth. But there was no enthusiasm to start a Christian college. They said, that's not our job. We don't do that. And I'm, I was arguing constantly. <laughs> We've never been invited even by Costa Rica <laughs> to start a Christian college. Right. And now our superpower neighbor comes yeah. to us, I mean, and a rival comes to us and invites us to come into Moscow. We got to do this. In a moment, John Birnbaum will continue his account of Russia's first Christian college. That's coming up next. I'm so grateful for the grace I receive while listening to FBBC all day long. I cried listening to God's message multiple times. The Far East Broadcasting Company receives millions of responses each year from grateful listeners. FEBC is dedicated to taking Christ to the world through radio and new media. To learn more, please visit febc.org. That's febc.org. The Far East Broadcasting Company, until all have heard. Our first person guest is Dr. John Birnbaum, author of Opening the Red Door. He picks up the story now by describing being on the scene for the 1991 Boris Yeltsin coup. Yeah. Oh, what an incredible experience that was. My land. You know, by the way, I just have to say, Wayne, it was a joke among my faculty and my staff that whenever Birnbaum is in town, we got problems. We got trouble. <laughs> I mean, I was literally in Russia every time there was a major event for the next 20 years. And, of course, I loved it because I'm a historian. I'm yeah. going, this is great. Yeah. So exactly. when Yeltsin's on that tank, I mean, you're are you well, close by? Well, that's what happened. That, that's exactly what happened. You know, we were we arrived in Moscow and walked around the Kremlin walls the night before the coup. So they were inside those walls planning the final details. We had no idea, of course. Mm, no. And we're walking around and laughing and saying, this is a great time and so forth. The next morning, I'm shaving and I have BBC radio on behind me. And all of a sudden, I hear them talking about Gorbachev in the past tense. Oh. And I went, what is going on, you know? And then we realized we were in the middle of the coup. So it was a, I was there with 12 faculty that were working on a mass, joint master's degree with Russians to do an MBA program. Mm-hmm. And uh, my faculty members, many of them were very frightened, and they wanted to get out of town. I can see why. Sure. And I said to them, folks, the airports are closed. We're not going anyplace, so you're going to have to relax. Of course, in the meantime, I'm going, this is great. (laughs) (laughs) I love this. This It's so exciting. And I wanted to see the democratic forces uh, survive and not be, not the old Soviet right wing come to power. Yeah. Well, it's one way to feel that way, though, but to be caught up in the turbulence of all that, that, I can understand their reticence. Oh, it was really extraordinary. And the next three days were, it was just, they're so emotionally filled. Together with our Russian faculty, we would be watching television and together and just seeing how they reacted. We would we tried to have our conference. We had meetings, but they were all cut short because a lot of people couldn't get access to the, to the conference grounds and mm-hmm, so, so, mm-hmm, so forth. Mm-hmm. So for three days, it was just all up in the air. And then finally, when it collapsed three days later, and we stood around and held hands and said, we shall overcome <laughs> with, these, with our Russians. I mean, it was such an emotional time. They were the ones who came up with the song, by the way. Did they? Yeah. And we just and and they said to us, "We're so proud of you. We're so grateful that you folks didn't flee, and leave us, 
And that really built our, built our relationship with these it Russians. Deepened really the relationship. helped us for the following subsequent years. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so pick up the story then of the university. This is a Christian university in Moscow. Yes. It took us, Wayne, it took us five years to get a license and get the permits to build the school. Even though the government, Russian government wanted us to do this, it was a very difficult, strenuous process, in part because they'd never had a private school in, in the history of the country. So there were no laws governing private education. So there were no legal permits that were possibly had to write. There were writing laws almost every day, number one. Number two, you couldn't get anything done if you didn't pay bribes. Mm-hmm. And we decided from the beginning we were not going to pay bribes. Didn't make you very popular, probably. No, and it slowed everything down. I mean, they would say to us, you know, we would, we, we'd like to deal with your paperwork, but we got lots of other work to do. And if you give us 10000 bucks, we can move it along. But otherwise, you're going to have to wait. So you stuck to your guns? So we stuck to our guns. Okay. It took us that many years to get the permits to do it. But then finally, we were able to get the school off the ground with summer institutes in 95 and 96, and then we opened the school in September of 96. Talk about the students that attended. Oh, they were amazing, Wayne. Such a hunger to learn. These These are Russian students. These are Russian students. Now, we were primarily focused on the children of Russian Christians. Their parents never could go to a university because they were Christians. They were denied access to higher education. So we said, let's train their children and help to give them leadership skills so in the future they can emerge as the leaders of the country in their communities and then even on the national level or the regional level. So that was our mission. So most of the kids who came to us came from rural areas. They had been pushed out of St. Petersburg and Moscow into provincial cities. They came to us. They were very, very poor but they were so passionate about trying to get educated. Of course, they never had a Christian educator work with them in their entire life. And it had life. to be a sacrifice for them. You didn't have dormitories, did you? No. Uh, so so they, had to, they had to, what, fend for themselves for living expenses? Well, <laughs> that was a huge challenge. We thought, Wayne, that the university would be a residential campus for Moscow. I mean, a city at that point was 13 or 14 million people. And we thought, uh, we don't need dormitories. Their kids are going to come from Moscow. Well, when we opened the school for the first time, half of the students came to us from other cities. Okay. And we thought, we got a problem. I mean, we, we don't have the money to put these kids in dormitory. We don't have a dormitory. What are we going to do? So we had to scratch around. And with the help of my Russian staff, we were able to find Christian families that took some of the kids in. And some churches in the community allowed us to put kids in their church facilities it was really a patchwork at first. Uh, the story of this university, it was always the, the the point was always that it would be a cooperative venture, but yes. eventually it would have to be supported by Russians. Yes. Uh, talk about uh, that transition. That was a painful part of the experience, um, because Russian support was very slow in coming. I think what. Marxism and communism did to the church was remove any teaching about nonprofit corporations, stewardship, tithing. Mm-hmm. It was lost. So I had to constantly deal with Russian pastors who would send us five or seven of their students. And then I would say to them, thank you for sending us your students. Would you be willing to contribute to the education of, our, of these kids? Well, we can't, we can't do that. We don't have the resources. 
So it was really a struggle. The goal was to 50-50 in terms of funding from American and Russian sources. Mm-hmm. We never got anywhere near that. Mm-hmm. Even by the end of the school, Cool's experience, 2010, 2011, I would say we had probably no more than 20% of the funding was from Russia itself. The rest was coming from America? The rest was coming from the United States and Canada. But you saw that that wasn't healthy? It was not healthy, and we were trying very hard to work on that. And I think over time, there might have been some possibilities. So the end came when? Well, the end it depends how you want to think about it. I mean, the end came in probably 2011, 2012. I mean, there's still some things that were sure. spurting along. Sure. But school was done at that point. Okay. But now the legacy continues because we are funding all kinds of educational programs, particularly with Mission Eurasia. Yeah, that's what I want to talk about next is what is the ongoing work today? The political climate obviously changed again, radically changed. Oh, it's terrible. Um, And it's it's a difficult ministry field. It really is. But we're not giving up. Yeah, we we continue now to use our foundation to support Christian educational programs in Russia and Ukraine. And now we're spreading into some other post-Soviet states with the help of Mission Eurasia. So like many ministries right now, we still fund projects in Russia. Okay. But a lot of our work has shifted to Ukraine, mm-hmm. which is so open, mm-hmm. and Moldova, Georgia, and some of the other places. It was interesting. My trustees, when we started the foundation, said, we're only giving money to Russia. God called us to Russia. That's where the money's going. After about a year, they said, well, maybe Ukraine. And now we're slowly getting them to realize, well, the other post-Soviet states also right. need the same kind of Christian training. Right. So right. that's been part of the growth. Any regrets? Oh, no. Absolutely not. No. I'm, I'm, while it was difficult and uh, challenging, and I spent a lot of time on my knees, I mean, I'm a type A personality. I get to Russia and realize, forget that stuff. <laughs> I need to learn how to deal with, flex, be flexible and, and uh, have patience. And yeah. I learned a lot of spiritual lessons. My wife was a huge encouragement in this whole process. Marge was a key part of this thing from the beginning. But no, no regrets at all. I feel like we responded to the call. We gave it a good effort. I think we've planted some seeds that God's going to honor. Now I'm excited to see what lies ahead. Philip Yancey says that John Birnbaum's book, which tells more of the stories you've heard on First Person, reads like a spy thriller. It's titled Opening the Red Door, and we'll place a link to the book at firstpersoninterview.com. Dr. Birnbaum also mentioned Mission Eurasia in our conversation, which in many ways is carrying on the ministry started by the Christian University in Moscow. You can learn more about Mission Eurasia with the link found at firstpersoninterview.com. Another ministry very active in Russia, even today, is the Far East Broadcasting Company. Millions of Russian listeners hear FEBC's gospel-centered programs online through social media, and they respond with questions and comments, often placing their faith in Christ. Learn more about FEBC's ministry in this part of the world by going to febc.org. Pray that this door for the good news will remain open. febc.org, until all have heard. And a reminder that our free smartphone app is available. Just search for First Person Interview in your app store. You can download and listen to any interview there in the archive. Look for First Person Interview in your app store. Now, with thanks to my friend and producer Joe Carlson, I'm Wayne Shepard. Thank you for listening to First Person. First Person.